Thank you for listening to this teaching from Table Church. We're in our Advent series right now called How to Hope Again. Now it's been said that we live in a hope-sick world. That means that hope is hard to find and it's evident in everything from our emotional lives to our political discourse. We need to learn how to hope again. And there's no better time than Christmas. So if you're near the Des Moines area this holiday season, we'd love to have you join us at our Christmas Eve service. It'll be at 6 p.m. at the Des Moines Community Playhouse. You can learn more at tablechurchdsm.org. Now, please enjoy this week's message. Good morning, church. My name is Ivy Sprague. I'm part of the hospitality team here at Table Church, and I'm here to read this morning's scripture. If you need a Bible, one of my fabulous hospitality team teammates will get one for you if you just throw a hand up. This morning's scripture comes from the first chapter of Luke, verses 5 through 20. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Well, once again, thank you for being here today. It's great to have you at Table Church. My name is Phil Wiseman. I'm the lead pastor here. And it's, uh, if I haven't gotten to meet you before, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for coming and worshiping here with us today. And um, hard to believe it, uh, we're to Advent already. It always creeps up on you, right? Um, and so I just want you to know that it is now officially okay to decorate for Christmas. Okay? Like... And I, w- I would even say, look, not the day after Thanksgiving, but today, the first Sunday of Advent, like that's when you can decorate for Christmas. And look, it's not just me saying this. We're talking about hundreds of years of church tradition we're talking about here. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even, like the, the question can be answered. Um, but I know uh, I was driving through the neighborhood last night. It's amazing. Man, all these uh, people are on it with their Christmas lights. I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm a slacker, apparently. 
Um, but it's good to be here with you today. Um, also, if you're interested in going to Zambia on a missions trip with us next, uh, next July with our missions partner, Poetis International, we have a informational meeting on December 11th. Uh, you're not committing to anything by coming to the meeting. You're just coming to get more information. Uh, we'd love to have you. It'll be to the ministry center at 6 o'clock. Just write Zambia on your connection card, and we will get you plugged in. And also, parents, just so you know, today in our uh, table tots and kids table, that's our preschool and elementary age kids ministries, uh, they'll be getting a Christmas kindness bingo card. And so all through Advent, we're going to be doing Christmas acts of kindness. And um, if you get a bingo, so you do like five things in a row that's on the card. If you get a bingo, you bring it in for a prize. And you know what I find is that uh, these little things we give our kids to help them learn about Jesus, I usually look at them, I'm like, whew, that's pretty good. I should probably do that, you know? Uh, so maybe you want to dive in along with your kids, and who knows, maybe it'll be a transformative thing for the whole family. So be sure to grab one of those if they don't have one after church. Well, I sat across the table from a young man a few, a few years ago. Uh, he, he was attending the church that I previously worked at, and he actually had come to my small group a few times. He'd emailed me and asked me to meet with him because he was questioning God. He was questioning his faith. This was our third meeting, and throughout the course of our conversation, you know, I'd done my best to listen to him and to try to understand what's going on and even gave him some books to read that had helped me kind of in my faith formation. Um, tried to help him make sense of his doubts. But this meeting that I'm referring to, this third one, this, this meeting had a different tone than the others. You see, he wasn't really there to uh, voice questions anymore at this point. He was actually, he was simply there to tell me he'd kind of made up his mind. He didn't, he didn't want to be a Christian anymore. Said he didn't really believe in God. And he's not going to come to church anymore. Now, when I tried to kind of dig in and, and really try to find out what's going on, kind of get an answer from him, like, well, what happened? What, what went wrong here? The only answer he'd give me is he just would say, he said it over and over again. He said, I don't know, man. I'm just not feeling it. I'm just not feeling it anymore, he said. Now, I don't think he was dodging my question, you know? I think that was his honest answer. He just didn't feel it. It's a genuine reason. And today we kick off a new series, obviously an Advent series, and we're looking forward towards the coming of the Messiah, towards the birth of Christ. That's what Advent means. It's a time of waiting, a time of anticipation. And this series is called How to Hope Again, because that's what Advent is all about. It's about hope. And so we're going to talk about hope in times of sadness and evil and confusion, but today we're going to talk about hope in times of doubt. The young man across the table from me was expressing his doubts, I think in the best words that he knew how. And I think, I think about that moment a lot. I wonder if, if there was something I could have said that would have helped more, you know? Um, maybe something I could have given him to read that would have helped more. But, but as I've thought about it over the years, you know, I gave him a lot of information. He had a lot of information. But I don't think information was really what he needed. I think he needed something else. You see, when Christians today confront doubt, our impulse is always to throw information at it. We've got, hey, watch this debate on YouTube. You know, we've got arguments. We've got proofs. We've got books. We've got so much stuff to go to if what we need is information as far as answers to our questions. 
And I know some of that is helpful, but you know, I've come to think that information is simply not enough. Like a faith can't be built simply on information. We need something more to find hope in doubt. And I think that our passage on Zechariah actually gives us the clue to this. Zechariah, Zechariah excuse me, is a priest in the temple. Uh, but he's old and his wife, um, they don't have children. And while he was alone in the holiest part of the temple, the place where no one else was allowed to go, suddenly an angel appears to him, Gabriel. And he tells him that his wife will become pregnant and their son will be John the Baptist, who was the one who kind of announced the coming of Jesus. But Zechariah has his doubts. He says, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. I love how Zechariah kind of softened it for his wife there. I'm old. My wife, well, she's well along. He's thinking. The first thing to notice about this story, I think, is that it has strong Abraham vibes going on here. Like in the book of Genesis, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they're also old and childless. And God comes to them and says that they're going to have a son too. And just like Zechariah, they doubt God. In fact, Sarah laughs when she hears the news. And there's an important similarity between these stories that I think is still relevant for us today. It's this. Listen, both Abraham and Zechariah did not doubt whether God existed. They doubted whether God would actually do anything. That was what they doubted. Zechariah questions whether God can actually give him a child, whether God's actually going to do this thing that he said he would do, whether he would actually fulfill his promises, so does Abraham. And for them, look, it's not a matter of, well, what are the rational proofs of God's existence? You know, that's, that's, not, that's not it. It's this, it's do I believe in my heart that God will actually come through? Look, people today spend a lot of time arguing about whether or not God exists, but that question... I don't think that question is really where the conflict lies. Because honestly, most people today believe in God. Like if you picked a random person off the street, odds are that they would say that they believe in God. But it's one thing to believe that God exists in the abstract. It's, most people do that. But it's a whole nother thing to believe that God will move in my life. Listen, what's hard for us today is to believe that God will move. Listen, that is where like a secular modern worldview has us kind of cornered. Most of the people in this room probably believe that God exists, but if you but the question is, okay, do you think that God has something to say and do in your life right now today? That's where we're like, well, I don't sure, you know, maybe that's where it gets hard for us to really believe. The question of whether God exists, this is an abstract question. It invites abstract reasoning. You know, hey, everything in space and time is contingent upon something else for its existence. Therefore, it's reasonable to believe that space and time itself is contingent upon something else for its existence. Voila, God exists. And I think that's true. But you know what? Something about that sentence I just said, doesn't, nobody's falling to the floor in conviction right now, I can see. You know, like there, it's an abstract thing and it, there's still work to be done for that to become the eternal God that knows me and that works in my life and that hears me when I pray, that numbers the hairs on my head. That's basically an algebra equation, you know? 
I can compartmentalize that. But the question of whether God will show up in my life the way he promises to, now that is something we find a little harder to believe sometimes. There's a philosopher named Charles Taylor. Uh, he, he, he describes this shift that we've undergone in the last 500 years. His big question is, why is it that 500 years ago it was hard not to believe in God, not to believe that God is at work? Now, 500 years later, it's actually hard to believe it. Like, what, what changed there? And he wrote this, like, 900-page book, and it's won lots of philosophy awards, and, and he makes his case pretty compellingly. And here's what he says. Uh, he says, it's not a matter of scientific discovery demonstrating that there is no God. Like, that, that's not what happened. In fact, he'll trace hundreds of other developments, and I'll talk about a few of them in a second. But what, what he says is that we have undergone a radical shift in what we understand and how we understand the concept of a self, Okay. A self. What is a human self? What exactly am I? And, and, and he would say that we've undergone quite a shift in that regard. 500 years ago, he says, we, we saw ourselves like a wiffle ball. He said, um, he calls it a porous self, a porous self, meaning like, you know, uh, we were open to the transcendent supernatural realm intersecting and intervening and affecting our lives. Okay, in, in, our, in our minds, there was this whole world of transcendence and supernatural. There was angels and demons and God and fairies and wood spirits, you know, all sorts of things 500 years ago that people believed in and that we were vulnerable to those things, that those things could affect our lives and ourselves and our, our families for good or for bad. That was what we thought 500 years ago. Well, well things have changed in the last 500 years. Now we are what, what Charles Taylor would call uh, a buffered self, not a porous self, but a buffered self. And so that's like a baseball, you know, that's where uh, we might still believe there's a God out there, but it's like there's a roof installed on the universe and the transcendent supernatural realm can't really break through. Like we're buffered now. And so I'm just going to have to get along with my life on my own and figure things out myself because there's nothing that God's going to do to make, break through to me. I'm, I'm buffered. Now, now, like I said, what, what, what changed, he said, is not necessarily just scientific advancement, chipping away at belief, demonstrating the silliness of it all. That, that's not the case. In fact, most of the great scientists of the last 500 years were Christians. But rather, there has been a confluence of hundreds, if not millions, of other things and events and historical factors that have gone into changing our view of who we are and what we're like. So, for example, you know, a farmer used to have to pray for seasonal change in order for their crops to grow. I mean, he was totally dependent on other forces outside of himself in order to make a, a living. But slowly over time, things started to change. We invented fertilizer and farm technology. And now pretty soon, I've got just a little bit more mastery over nature. And so I don't really necessarily need God quite as much as I do now. And so the shift started to occur from the wiffle ball to the baseball. Or another example, you know, we used to have no access to people on the other side of the world. Well, today we can see them in a few hours. And so this gives us this sense of this mastery over nature that we, we used to be at the mercy of something else, someone else. Well, not so much anymore. We can just kind of get along well without it. They've created the conditions 
where we don't really feel the need for God anymore. It's, it's not rational belief. It's, it's not like the farmer goes, well, oh, fertilizer, there must be no God, you know? No, it's just that slowly over time, we have positioned ourselves in such a way where we don't need him anymore. And we don't need God. You stop thinking that he's there at all. That's our, that's our predicament today. We're, we're buffered. Now, when that young man sat across the table from me, I don't think that deep down he was wrestling with whether God exists. He was wrestling with whether he's like this. He was wrestling with whether or not God would actually do anything in his life. If God had any relevance at all. And look, if God exists, but this is the way the world looks, then what's really the difference? Practically speaking, there isn't one. If God exists but can't do anything in my life, then what's the point? And so when he says, well, I don't know, I'm just not feeling it, what he means is like, I don't, think that, I don't think God matters for me. I don't think that God can break through to me. I don't think he will. And despite all the information thrown at him, his answer was, look, I'm just not feeling it. So I think there's a few things we can say to this. And the first would be this. The cure for doubt... The cure for doubt is not simply information, but encounter. The cure for doubt is not information, but encounter. I'll pull this back out. Because that, that, that's the difference here. We, we, haven't, we haven't discovered anything so revolutionary, philosophically speaking, the last 500 years to necessarily merit transition from here to here. You know? It's not information that got us here. It's more of a mood. It's more of a feeling. Like we just kind of feel like we don't need God anymore because we have the power to basically control the world. And so what we need is not so much information. What we need is an encounter with God. That's why Christmas is maybe the best time to talk about doubt because, I mean, what's Christmas about other than God breaking through us, to us in an unexpected way, in the way that we needed most? Now, some of you are in like an Advent season of your own. Like you're waiting to see if God's going to show up. You're waiting to see if he's going to move in your life. And with each passing moment, you get a little bit less hopeful. What I don't think you need is simply more information, more arguments for God's existence. You know, I'm not discounting those things. Maybe they're helpful for you. But 16 years in ministry, what I've found is that what people really need is they need to know that God is with them. They need an encounter. And look, I can't give you a formula to make that happen. There's no magic potion, you know what I mean? Uh, but what I can do is I can look at what seems to be a pattern in the Bible for when God shows up in people's lives. But I want to warn you, you might not entirely like it. But here's the pattern that I see, at least. It's this. When people encounter God in the Bible, it often involves some sort of loss. A loss. A season of humbling it can look kind of different, but it's something to that effect. Moses, he had lost his home and his people before God showed up to him in the burning bush. Elijah was running for his life when God spoke to him in a still small voice. Saul, he's walking along the road to Damascus and boom, the resurrected Jesus appears to him. Now suddenly he's blind, disillusioned, his world is upside down, he doesn't know what's going on. Even Zechariah, our guy today, when he's visited by the angel, he loses his ability to speak for nine months. Here's what I think we learn when we study those 
those instances of God showing up. It's that God will not shout over our pride. And I'm not saying that God necessarily causes everything bad in our lives. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that usually when God does show up, it, it's often in the middle of a season of loss. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the Bible. And I don't know that God necessarily caused all these bad things to happen. He didn't cause everything that happened with Moses to happen. But you know what? He sure used it. He sure used it to get a hold of Moses. An encounter with God often involves some sort of a humbling season. There's a time where we start to realize, look, what a, what a lie it is that we can do it on our own. We often think that we're self-sufficient, right? We're the baseball. We don't need God. And if change is ever going to happen, then we need to realize how untrue that is. That's why when the angel takes... That's why when the angel takes away Zechariah's speech, I don't think he's punishing him for his doubt. I think he's giving him the one thing he needed in order to encounter God. I think he's giving him the thing that he needed in order to get over his doubts. And actually, it's clear to me in the text that through that season, Zechariah did have an, a transformative encounter with God he gets his speech back when his son John is born and he immediately sings a song of praise. And here's what he says in that song. It says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because listen, he has come to his people. It's encounter. Through his humbling, Zechariah is now able to proclaim, God has come. I've seen him. He has encountered him. And so what we're finding is there's this biblical pattern for encountering God. And at Christmas, we're reminded that this pattern is actually the very thing that, that God himself has modeled to us. One of my favorite Christmas passages is one you wouldn't expect. It's not in the Gospels. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. It says that Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That's the Christmas story in a sentence, by the way. Although Jesus was God, he did not grasp for power, but he emptied himself. Made himself nothing, it says, for our sake. In other words, he became a little baby, born in a manger. There's a theologian named Andrew Root. He takes this pattern that we see in Philippians, not just Philippians, all over the place in the Bible, and he breaks it down into like a template for our lives. This is like the scriptural template that we often see when there's an, like an encounter with God, when God shows up in our lives. Here's what he says. He says, uh, he almost makes it algebraic. He says, although X, not Y, but Z. Although X, not Y, but Z. This is the pattern we see in the way of Jesus. Let me explain it a second. <clears throat> so, it's modeled after Jesus himself, who, although... He was God, that's X, did not grasp it, that's Y, but emptied himself, that's Z. Although X, although this is true, not what most people would find logical, but rather Z, the way of Jesus. Although Jesus had every right and the ability to turn away from us, he didn't do what would seem natural, seem obvious, seem logical. No, he did the opposite. Although X, not Y, but Z. And look, you can take this little formula. You can apply it to all sorts of situations in your life. And you can ask yourself, how am I following the way of Jesus here? What change do I need to make? 
Look, although you don't have time for that difficult customer, you choose not to ignore their calls, but try to see their person and help them. Although your child has been rude all morning to you, you recognize that she's stressed or hungry or tired, and so you decide not to come down hard on them and decide to meet a need instead. Although X, not Y, but Z. And look, when we take this as our model of life, what we're doing is we're constantly putting ourselves in situations where we can be humbled and where God can break through. Listen, if you read church history, the, like the, the, the masters of the devotional life, people who just had this vibrant knowledge, not about God, but of God, they are the masters of this formula. They can put this into their life, into practice in incredible ways, in ways that you and I would be like, hey, no, obviously I'm going to do this. This person just cut me off in traffic, you know, I, I know what that requires. Oh, no, we gotta learn, we gotta learn a different formula. Although X, not Y, but Z. We gotta learn the way of Jesus. And that's what happen, happens in Philippians 2. Jesus, he lives, at, he lives out this pattern. He empties himself, and as a result, what's it say? It says, therefore, God exalted him. See, this is the breakthrough that often happens. It happens in Moses. It happens in Elijah. It happens in Zechariah, even Jesus himself. It's this. God shows up in the letting go. God shows up in the letting go. And so the key to experiencing God's kind of presence in our lives is, I think, is to lay down our pride. I choose the downward way of Jesus, although X, although I could do this, although this would make sense, and I have the right and the power to do it, I'm not going to. I'm going to do this instead. A few weeks ago, one of my kids was being difficult. I may have been difficult too. I don't remember. <laughs> and they were mad. And I was mad. And this whole thing was headed nowhere good. I don't know if other parents are this way. It seems like when one of us is in a bad place, the other one can often step in with a cooler head. And that's exactly what Natalie did. She stepped in and she put that child on her lap, put her forehead against theirs and started telling them how much they're loved. And a locomotive was stopped in that moment. In that moment, Natalie lived out, although X, not Y, but Z. If I could have that moment back with that young man across the table from me, I think, I think I would change my approach. I think maybe I would, I'd probably still give him some books to read, you know. But I wouldn't focus on the information. I, I would ask him, hey, if this is honest, if, if you're being intellectually honest here, if you're not just saying, you know what, I kind of want to live however I want, I don't want any accountability in life, I just want to, whatever, you know. If that's where you're at, there's not much I can tell you. But if you're genuinely searching for the truth, what matters more? What could matter more than this? I'd say, hey, listen, why, why don't you take some time and put yourself in a situation to be vulnerable before God, to open yourself up to God, to see what God might do through it? You know, maybe you need to take a day or two or three or go camping or get out in the woods and fast and pray and say, God, I need you. Maybe it's worth a month of Netflix, you know? Maybe it's worth taking a month and say, look, I'm going to not do Netflix for a month, I'm going to spend that time chasing God. Seems like a worthy trade-off in the grand course of a life. Maybe it means being quiet before God longer than we want to be. Maybe it means saying, hey, 
I'm going to do what this takes. God, I'm going to, I'm going to chase you. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to seek you until I find you. Today, the church is stricken with doubt, and it's not necessarily doubt whether God exists or not. I know that that's a, that's a doubt for many people. It's not necessarily what I'm talking about here in this sermon. And quite honestly, I'm not sure if there's much I could say to you. Um, because while there are obviously rational arguments, what matters most is what's going on right here. Karl Barth said that, you know, we can construct the most supreme being in our minds, and that being would have nothing to do with God. The only God that is true is the God that has broken through to us, the God that has revealed himself to us in Christ. And so if you're, if you're wondering if God is there and if God will actually move in your life, if you're like Zechariah, you're like, how can, how can this happen? How can this be? Maybe it's time for an encounter. And for that to be the case, you may need to make a lifestyle change. You may need to apply this template to your life in some certain areas and just see what God starts to do when you start to follow him on the downward way of Jesus. And I can't promise when or where or how or anything like that. All I know is that in my own life, I've seen God show up in the most unexpected ways in the most unexpected places when I have been living out the way of Jesus. Although X, not Y, but Z. And if you're going through a season of loss or a season of humbling or whatever, I'm sorry, I don't think that God has caused it. But I do think that God might be able to meet you in it if you're willing to meet him there too. So I wonder what that would look like for you today. You received a, a note card on your way in today, and I would love for you to grab that note card and a pen, and at the top, simply write our formula, although X, not Y, but Z. Write it at the top, and we're gonna solve the equation today. I want you to um, think about your life as we sing this next song. Ask yourself, are there any areas of my life where I need to live this out? Maybe I need to make a change, or I need to uh, do a course correction. My lo the, mo the locomotive is moving one direction and it needs to go another. What does that look like for you today? And as we sing this next song, I wanna just invite you to pray through it. Ask God to reveal it to you. You got time. Write it down on your card. You know, although my boss at work is being a real jerk to me, I'm not gonna get all passive. I'm not gonna start, you know, finding ways to undercut him. I'm going to love him instead. Although my child is doing this, although my parent is doing this, although my coworker, my sibling, or whatever, I'm going to respond in the way of Jesus. That's our challenge for today. So as we sing this song, I want to invite you to be praying, praying through that and seeing what God would have for you.